I don't much like doing my own stuff. I really like separating church and state and having writer brain for these things, actor brain for these things, because I find when I cross the streams, it's, it's very difficult to let go of one side or the other, and ultimately it's just much harder to enjoy it. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. What a difference a couple of months or days can make. This conversation was recorded a few months ago and now putting it out today, everything we talk about has new and different connotations. In the months between then and now, lots of different terrorist atrocities have taken place in different parts of the world and particularly right-wing white terrorism has been getting the press and being described in those terms finally the other big thing that's happened is that the eu referendum took place and the outcome of that is that the uk is currently at this time heading in the direction of leaving the eu certainly That was the outcome of the referendum. Regardless of the results of the referendum, something that has definitely happened since then and in the run-up to them is an increase in anti-migrant, anti-refugee and racist hatred. That's something that has been fed by the press, it's been fed by politicians and it is fed by the general public reinforcing these racist attitudes to each other and condoning those racist statements in other people. And what I would like to say is that whether you voted leave or whether you voted remain, surely the biggest and most important job of all of us at this time is to push back against all of that. Whether you think the UK should be in Europe or not, surely you think that fellow human beings should be treated with respect and decency. And so let's try our hardest to push back against this trend that is happening currently in the UK, across Europe and in America. We need love. We need solidarity. We need empathy. But we also need to stand up and be counted and say no. Fascism racism and a culture full of lies and misinformation no to those things let's take care of each other moving forwards wherever we go to next i need to get better please make me better i want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Felix Trench. Uh, hello Felix. Hi Dave. I don't always say my guests' surnames but I particularly like yours so <laughs> I, I thought I would just uh, make sure I, I had that one in the mix from the start. Uh, we're recording outside in a park near the South Bank, the other side of the, the river than normal, on the embankment side. In fact we're by a, a statue of someone. I can't see their name from here but apparently they're a true patriot so... Uh, that obviously means that, that we should have a statue of them. So Walter Lawson. So Walter Lawson, there you go. We're sitting by a statue of Walter Lawson in the sunshine uh, on some grass with some daisies on, uh, which is the best kind of grass uh, in, my, in my view. So yeah, the first question that I ask everybody is how do you know me? We met 
at the Podcasters Support Group Christmas Party last December. And I think we talked about podcast sponsors, I, yeah. as I recall. So that's when I met you originally, and then I plumbed you for information you did, yeah, which a I, couple of months ago. I was flattered to be plumbed for. <laughs> uh, if, if, if only I've, I, I, I sometimes feel like someone who doesn't really have any information, but it's still nice to be asked about what, what little I do have in my No, it was very interesting and very experience. useful, because you're much more experienced in the world of podcasting than I was, so I was like, oh yeah, this would be a, a great person to talk to yeah I mean it's although it's interesting I think um, I've, I've been going longer so I'm a veteran I guess and I've had some critical acclaim but uh, the podcast that you are involved with Wooden Overcoats is, is I would definitely say a successful podcast in terms of audiences and uh, again critical acclaim in a shorter space of time you've got at least as much critical acclaim as I've got in a long a long period of time yeah yeah we're we're very pleased with it <laughs> certainly <laughs> Right. Yeah, we met up again, as you say, had a chat about podcasts. Yeah, and you bought me coffee and I felt terrible because I'd asked you for the coffee. Oh, no, I don't mind that. It, what goes around comes around with coffees, I think. <laughs> You've just bought me a Coke, right? Uh, yeah. So that's, that's even. Thank God. Yeah, and then after that, we sort of have remained kind of interested in what each other are doing. I yes. saw you do Radio Man yes, relatively recently, um, and you booked me to do my podcast after Radio Man, yeah. which is part of the reason I saw it. We don't know each other very well. Nope. Aware of each other's work. Yeah. I think you've listened to Getting Better Acquainted. I have, yes. Uh, I haven't listened to Wooden Overcoats yet, um, although... That, I mean, that is mostly down to the fact that I want to listen to all of it, I feel like, when I, when, or at least there's a big chance I'm going to want to listen to all of it, so I'm trying to find some time to binge listen. Sure. But yeah, that makes me in an interesting place uh, to interview you, but then I, I, I never claim to be a professional. I find that people in podcasting find it more difficult to listen to the show, I think possibly because they've just got a, a larger backlog uh, and are right. sort of more aware of... It's a bit like... When you work in theatre, there's a lot of shows that you feel you need to see and want to see because you end up knowing a lot of people in different shows. So I suspect it's similar in podcasting. You kind of go, yes, I definitely want to make time for all of your work, but also I have a lot on. And also I want to find out what else is going on outside of my social circle. Yep. So, yeah, I understand that kind of dilemma. And you find out about new excellent sounding podcasts every day or at yeah. least I do and then I add them to my feeds to, to listen to and then they sort of mount up and I just look at my I, I have half an hour and I go what shall I listen to and I look at all of these amazing new shows that I really want to hear about and then I go yeah but I've got half an hour so I'll listen to the thing I know I'm definitely going to like and that's yeah. kind of how it goes uh, and also being a freelance I think uh, freelancer means that it's it's harder to, to find the time to listen to stuff. When I had a day job and commuted, I listened to podcasts all the time. But now I, I, I'm, I'm always either editing or trying to have a break from some audio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I sympathise with that. <laughs> right, I bet. Um, so the second question I ask everybody is, uh, what do you do now? I'm an actor, primarily. I do other bits and bobs. So I, I do some writing. I, I run pub quizzes for money. Uh, and I also do some graphic design for money, and that's kind of the, the broad shape of my life. Right. When did you first get interested in acting? <laughs> As a kid, when it became clear that I wasn't going to be doing after-school football particularly <laughs> willingly. I grew up in Belgium, and at the time... I went to a Belgian-French school till I was eight, then I went to a European school till I was 18 because there was an English section in that, so the European school is like an international school. And 
I think mum and dad wanted me to have some sort of Anglophone culture and society and, and friends when I was a kid and there was a, a youth theatre, an English language youth theatre that ran, I think, out of the British school, although I, I didn't go to that school myself. So I guess there. Uh, and then that sort of turned into student theatre when I was at uni and uh, a, a lot of going, am I going to be an actor? Nah, probably not, but I'll probably do something in theatre. And then I, I feel that for a lot of people with my sort of background, there's a moment when you're at uni where you sort of come out as an actor and go, yes, I want to do this disreputable job. Or as it felt at the time, disreputable doesn't particularly feel that way now. So that was in my maybe third or fourth year of uni. I was like, no, you know what, I'll, I, I, I will give this a go and see what happens. And that's what you're doing now? Yeah. And how's that going? <laughs> oh, ups and downs. Like, I've enjoyed it. So I've been doing it professionally for five years now. The first six months or so, I suppose, were the hardest because that was when... Th- that combined with having nowhere to live. Literally, I left drama school and left my house at the same time and then couch surfed for 14 months before I found somewhere to live. Right. So I was kind of doing that. Didn't have any work. Yeah, my first proper job... In fact, I had sort of... I, I did an Edinburgh, uh, Edinburgh Fringe play straight after drama school, but then my first job, proper job was in a production of Leah the following February or March and I remember getting the offer and the part and being so very happy and ecstatic and since then I've, I've worked kind of on and off in uh, first mostly in fringe theatre and then I've done bits and bobs I've done a couple of soaps and increasingly my own work and organising putting on stuff myself which right. has been very rewarding some people are doing some photography in front of us. It's a uh, multidisciplinary part. Right, it's, it's, it's become, this has become the recording yeah. uh, spot uh, of, uh, of the park. Uh, are your parents British yes. originally? So my parents both... Well, they both moved to France, actually, in the late 60s, early 70s. They didn't know each other at the time. It was a time in Britain when... There wasn't a lot of work in the UK. The 70s was about to happen, you can get three-day week and all that. And a, a lot of Brits moved over to France and Germany, which is where the whole kind of Alphita Zane pet thing comes from. Yeah. And so they were very much part of that. Mum, uh, Mum's from Liverpool, and <laughs> she kind of appeared in France, then came back to Liverpool, and the way she puts it is everyone was suddenly using kettles as handbags, and she was having none of it, so she went back to France. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Dad... He had some sort of local newspaper background in, in the Midlands, but then he went over to Paris to train properly as a journalist. So they both had work in Paris and then later Strasbourg for mum. But the, the big thing that changed was 1973, Britain and Ireland joined the EU, and suddenly there's jobs in Brussels for people who speak English and French. So they both went up there and became part of the... Uh, expat English-speaking community in Brussels, and that's where they met through amateur theatre. <laughs> <laughs> right, so a little bit of theatre is in the blood. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, and so you grew up in Bel in Belgium in Brussels, right? Yep. You said you didn't go to the British school, so you were going to what mainstream school there? So I was going to, I suppose, what would be in Belgium a state school until I was eight, and then this weird beast called the European school which is 
it's a kind of network of schools around Europe. We used to have one in the UK, I think it's just south of Oxford, which was the European School of Cullum. That closed a few years ago, I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it came at about the same point that the British government started pulling British teachers out of other European schools. So when I was taught, it, if you were in the English section like me, the English-speaking teachers were half British, half Irish. As I understand it, they're now entirely Irish. Uh, so something has happened there where the UK government has said no more British teachers going to the European school systems. But there's, yeah, there's now... God, I think there's now five in Brussels. There were two when I started, and the third one opened in what's third year to me, so that's when you're 13. Then there's, there's the big one in Luxembourg. There's Italy. There's one on the kind of Franco-German border. Yeah, they've been going since, like, the early days of what would later become European Community, European Union, and all of that. So the one that I went to, I think, was the first one. And that started off as, as a very small endeavour, which has grown and grown. And, yeah, we do a different exam system to anyone else. So we do the European Baccalaureate, which I guess is similar to the International Baccalaureate. It's very academic. It's based on... I'm told it's based on the Napoleonic system, which means it's based on the French system of education. Yeah. Uh, so it's very much, these are the sort of subjects that you should be taught. Things like maths, first language, second language. Everyone will do a bit of sciences, everyone will do a bit of maths, everyone will do a bit of history or geography or, or both. And you'll come away at the end with the kind of subjects that you expect in a kind of traditional Victorian style school system. Yeah. I feel like the, the groundskeeper here maybe is, is not a big fan of the education system <laughs> with their decision to mow the lawn across from us in a way that, I mean, he's going round in circles, but I don't see any changes happening to the grass. There's a lot of noise, but the, the, the grass does not actually seem to be being mowed particularly. It seems to be getting shorter. He um, needs to empty the bag is what he needs to do. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, he's he, you know he's got headphones on, so that blocks out the noise. Maybe it's it's a boring job. I'm sure you don't pay much attention. I don't really expect him to care that he's not doing it right. Um, nor do I think he should be sort of put right necessarily. But it's a, a rather unfortunate place for him to have decided to mow. And I'm working out if he's going to move on. It doesn't seem. I mean, I don't know doesn't seem clear. He's just going in circles. He, he is just going in circles. Is it interfering with the well, sound? Well, it, 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 it depends what you mean by interfering. If, 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 you're, if listeners are a fan of the sound of, of, of uh, the grass being mowed, mowed then it's, uh, it's not interfering at all. It's, it's in fact giving them that sound in a way that they maybe hardly ever get in their lives. Yeah. Um, so there's that. It's the sound of Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Right, so you grew up in Belgium, yep. studying your colleagues, at, well, whatever, your fellow pupils yep. were uh, from all over the world. Would that have been the case, or were they all Belgium? Or Yes and no. Um, so when I was there, the school was divided into... Well, when I started, it was divided into eight language sections. Then they opened another school and moved the Greeks and Dutch over there. So for the majority of my schooling, we had English, French, German, which you get in all the schools. Uh, and then we also had Italian, Spanish, and Danish. And every section had its own character, so the Danish were the cool kids that everyone wants to be friends with. Um, I don't know what the English were like. I know that we, by sixth and seventh year, 
became very good friends with the Spanish. I don't know if that always happens, maybe it does. Um, <laughs> in my class, what tended to happen is in the more uh, sort of global languages, you'll get... Oh, God, he's mowing the tarmac. Right, it's all right. The, the mowing of the tarmac means he's moving on. Right. In the more global languages, you'll get a wider spread of nationalities. So Brussels, a uh, very international city. We're very proud to say that we have the second highest concentration of journalists after Washington <laughs> from all over the world. So in my class, broadly, most people would have some form of either British or Irish, uh, and quite a lot would be half something else. But then we also had... There was Myra and Nick, and they were Greek. Carleen was Belgian. We had Strahil, who was Bulgarian. And as I understand it... In the years after I left, so I left in 2004, which is, if you're from Belgium or Brussels or anywhere that deals with the EU, that's a big date because that was the EU enlargement of the extra 10. Right. So they took on a couple of extra language sections there, and I think they got Polish and something else. But what a lot of, what tended to happen it was a lot of the new countries of the EU, uh, at least the people moving over to Brussels, sent their children to either the English or French section. Again, as I understand it, I'm getting a lot of this second-hand. The kind of first-language classes for many of the students became sort of second-language classes, and those students who were British or Irish in the first place or came from an Anglophone background, their parents frequently disagreed with this idea that their students weren't getting first-language tuition or were having to wait for the rest of the class to, to catch up in the language yeah and I don't know how much I do or don't agree with that because it, it seems to me that there is a strong pull there of people saying no I want to make sure that my kids get the culture that I'm bringing them up in and that's why I put them in the European schools so that they will get a certain element of this but yeah it sounds like it's it's become a, a tricky tension that right yeah I, I, I broadly grew uh, went to school with people from across the EU I think it or the Western EU, so it was the EU 15 when I was there. Right. Rather than an international school. So we had an international school in Brussels, the ISB, and that one and St John's, which was another international school, had very different flavours to us, much more kind of Americanisation. A lot of the kids there were the kids of... They were embassy kids, or they were the kids of people who worked at NATO. I think the ISB had an American football team. Right. Uh, so, yeah, and... They did the international baccalaureate, which again is a different beast. Yeah, and how do you sort of how do you think of yourself then, like in terms of your identity, like in terms of nations and continents and all of those things? Yeah, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I guess I feel like an expat kid, and that's the community I was brought up in was the expat community of Brussels, and we very much defined ourselves as expats. Rather than migrants. Yeah, I got in uh, a, a Facebook argument with my friend Ishbel uh, a few months ago, who was suggesting very intelligently that we get rid of the word expat and just replace it with migrants because the the one is the same as the other. And I think I reacted more strongly against it than I really believed on second thought. Because it did, it felt like an attack on my identity. And right. it, it felt like someone saying, the thing that you are is poisonous. So right. let's get rid of you and redefine. And I have no issue being 
defined as the child of migrants, but it, I suppose it never felt like it. I mean, I guess the, the move, and I'm probably, broadly speaking, quite supportive of changing everybody to be described as migrant. Yeah. And I guess part of the reason that that, that, that move is there is to, to make it so that the word migrant has the positive connotations that expat currently has Absolutely. for everyone. You know, and that's the thing that the expat is a, a thing that I can see how it's about your identity mm-hmm. and how it's about people saying we're remembering our community uh, in that place. But those are the people who get sanctioned to be allowed to do that, yeah. I guess. And, you know, we, we're amongst, you know, in London, there are plenty of communities here who are not considered to be expats when they try and keep their yeah. identity in their community. They are uh, seen as, as, as somehow revolting against the the body politic yeah. of this country. Which and is exactly what we did in, in Brussels. We were part of a group of UK people who, on the whole, hang out with, hung out with other UK or Irish. I mean, and that's not the case for everyone, but certainly that's where the majority of our friend group lay. Um, yeah. And even, funny enough, within that Anglophone community, we knew many more Brits and Irish than we did Americans. The Americans seemed to sort of do their own thing, the kind of ones who worked for NATO. Right. And, uh, yeah, I'd say, logically, I totally agree with you. Right, but (laughs) I can also understand your perspective of that's something that you've grown up with, it's a definition that you've always had about you, and then if you take that away, you know, you have to replace it with words that you wouldn't use about yourself, that you don't have any connotations with, and I can see that that side too. I mean, really, the, the need to make that distinction... Like whether it's you know it's it's less to do with you know if everything was changed, mm-hmm. both of those terms would could be used indis- indistinguishably, yeah, and, and exactly. no one would have a problem with either of them. I've, I mean, I've heard this this argument before of why doesn't everyone become migrants and we get rid of the positive word, and I've always wondered whether the opposite is feasible. Right, whether we can just all ev- migrants as expats. expats. Yeah, like that to me immediately sort of makes them feel more like average people like people that I don't have particular preconceptions of whereas the word migrant is is so loaded with preconceptions whether you want to or not yeah no it's interesting I mean I guess it's the thing is I think to me I think both those terms are loaded Mm -hmm. uh, in different ways with connotations but the problem is if you scrap them both and got a new word but you don't change the prevailing attitudes then that new word would then t- obtain its own connotations. The way that yeah. when we changed, quite rightly, our, our terminology to, to refer to uh, children with special needs as children with special needs, uh, because we didn't change the culture around that, yeah. kids now say, you special needs, kid, yeah. meaning the same thing that they meant when they said other things yeah. in the past. And so the cultural change hasn't happened there. So there's definitely a, a, a question about whether language or cultural change comes first or should they happen at the same time and and which which changes should we make and, and all of these things i think that's a very open space so i'm not yeah. i'm definitely not saying you should defer the fighters <laughs> whatever um but then i mean, i guess an in, another question that maybe you are guessing quite a lot at the moment or maybe everybody's a little bit afraid to talk to you about at this moment in time when it comes to to, to brussels is yes. that, that obviously there's been a a major change kind of for Brussels in terms of its feelings of safety um, in terms of you know the recent uh, yep. terrorist atrocities that happened there and you're an expat you're yep. here um, you're an ex-expat you're, I am an ex-expat. You're, you're kind of like yeah I've lived here for 10 years now yeah so you're now in the UK but somebody who has a lot of connection with 
Brussels. Yep. Whereas everyone else in this country, generally speaking around you, reacting to that crisis, will have all been reacting with very little understanding yep. of Brussels. So whether they're reacting in solidarity or whether they're acting in like, come on, put, put the brakes on, let's not overreact. And, and, and so you're, um, you're hearing a lot of arguing, I'm sure, about your uh, place of origin <laughs> by lots yeah. of people who don't know anything about it. Yeah. What do you think about all of that stuff? And how, I mean, I mean or, or how do you feel about it? thought might not be as significant as feeling in this moment for you? I don't know, uh, don't know. I, 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 I learned about it obviously on the same day as, as everyone else I've got uh, into that habit which I wish I'd break of wake up, phone on, what's happening on Twitter Yeah. and <laughs> literally Zarventum was trending and so that's the airport there and I thought uh oh why is Zarventum trending, looked it up and went oh there's been a bomb in Zarventum Christ that's awful and then Mulbig happened uh, which was the tube one and Malbec that's my turf so that's just around the corner from where I lived it's very central it's between me and the European district I used to get on the metro at either Arlois or Madou uh, and Arlois is the next one to Malbec mum always used to get off the metro at Malbec Uh, there's these famous paintings at Malbec of sort of almost childlike pictures of faces in this, the way that Brussels has of championing the absurd and the surreal so to kind of see that happen was was very scarring and I, it, it took me a while to process it and I've thought a lot about people's reaction to it in comparison to other reactions so whenever this happens increasingly we talk about it in relation to what else is happening around the world. Obviously, Paris got brought up. And at the same time, every other sort of suicide bombing uh, that killed people in other parts of the world, and I can't reliably remember which places it was right now that were happening at the same time as Brussels. And so we are reminded that your Western grief or your grief for a Western place is not reflected in your grief for a place that you are less familiar with right and I thought about this a lot during Paris I remember when London happened when 7-7 happened I watched from Brussels and I remember for me it's the image of the bus that it it really kind of hurt me and it was something about taking something that's so personal to you something that's so part of your cultural identity and destroying it that was so very painful I I remember not really reacting to September 11th. I remember being told about it and going, that's interesting. But as I was, what, 14? As a 14-year-old in Brussels, uh, I was kind of more interested in, in what else was going on and I kind of learned about it later and watched, about it, uh, watched it later. Everyone reacted to Charlie Hebdo in one way or another, and I certainly did because... It seemed to me to be an attack on cartooning. Uh, I think that's kind of what uh, hurt me the most. Again, having grown up in Brussels, there's a, a very strong tradition of the cartoon and, and the comic and all of that, and it's such a kind of innocent part of my childhood, although Charlie Hebdo are not themselves an innocent institution. Indeed. In the slightest. I'm glad you made that uh, qualification. But the idea of the attack on an art form like that again kind of 
went past logic and went and hit a nerve. And then again, the attack on Paris, it was similar. And I think a lot of people reacted to Paris because we reacted to things that we are familiar with. Right. So whether or not we've ever been to France, whether or not we've ever been to Paris, whether or not we have Parisian friends, our cultural narrative includes Paris in the same way that it includes the Parthenon, in the same way... Well, it was a rock concert as well, wasn't it? So that's something that most people in the Western world, whatever that... I don't necessarily like the word Western world, but we we all know what it means, even if I don't like the word. Most of us have been to a concert, a rock concert, a music concert. We we have some understanding that 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 could have been us uh, in a way that maybe uh, other bombings are not necessarily... But then that's part of the reporting. Often these atrocities that happen in non-Western countries happen in just as familiar mm-hmm. places, in coffee shops, in, yeah. in places where, where we could have been, we could be, but it's just it feels less uh, like a, a personal thing that yeah. could have happened to us. But, yeah, no, I, I, I can see that, uh, is a, it, that it's a complicated kind of landscape for people to navigate. Yeah. I mean, my feeling is about this, and every time these terrorist kind of a- attacks happen... I always find myself on social media at least in, in sort of constantly arguing for somewhere in the middle of these two uh, extreme positions which ultimately lead back to the same place I often think so like when we react to terror by taking away people's freedom generally yeah. speaking that's exactly what the people making those attacks want uh, and it's also that the governments often benefit from the attacks of terrorism that happen because then they get to use that to sanction their abuses of civil liberties and foreign policy um, and so it kind of I, I see people on both sides sort of playing into yeah. into these two uh, um, unfortunate positions that, that back up exactly what both sides in this want yeah. uh, and I don't want what either of those sides want and yeah. I'm sure most not most people but I'm, I'm sure many people don't I don't think that those loudest voices are necessarily the... Uh, and also, I don't think those loud voices know what they're doing. I don't think people are deliberately saying, right, I'm going to support terrorism by saying whatever I say. Yeah. But that's essentially what they are doing. What I was interested when I was watching that kind of Facebook thing play out after Brussels, which I accept and acknowledge is kind of very voyeuristic and sort of I'm removed from that. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was aware that there were all of these voices... Uh, and one of the voices I was most interested in listening to was you because you had direct experience and I, I think direct experience and lived experience is really important and your approach was so different from everyone else's and I thought it was very refreshing which was you were sharing positive uh, things you said, you know, I think at times like this who knows what, what to say apart from we can share positive stories and whatever kinds of positive stories that you shared and I thought that was a great example really um, and it's surprising to me that all of these people who are less personally connected don't have that moment of like, OK, I'll just take a, a, a step yeah. back and wait a couple of months to see what I think. People have to just immediately... Yeah, I mean, I tried, I sort of tried to do the same thing after Paris and go, how do I feel about this? I feel that Paris is still an amazing city that we all have a connection to, so let's remind ourselves of the brilliant things that happened in Paris and... Uh, and mourn as appropriate. Yeah, it was, it was really odd actually kind of stepping back on Brussels because in that way that uh, we were just talking about with people not engaging with the unfamiliar, that happened with Brussels. Like, everyone 
like my friends, talking to people in Brussels. They're all very scared, uh, and everyone was just going, just don't want to go outside. Yeah, a lot of people live around the European district, which was what was targeted with Malbec and, and things like that. But there was, from the kind of general, internet, Facebook, population, whatever you like, much less of a reaction than there was to Paris. And I think that's just because it, it conjures fewer images in your mind. You go, Brussels, what do you go? Well, like admin, probably, and bendy bananas, and then... Maybe have you been there, the mannequin piss? Chips and mayonnaise. Chips and mayonnaise, chocolate beer. <laughs> um, like it's you. You have a broad tourist idea of what it is, and you might have been probably been to Ypres on a school trip. But that's, I think, about it because it doesn't have that cultural connection and romanticism. Um, I often wonder, with say the Paris attacks, if that had happened in say. Uh, I don't know, somewhere in Burgundy or Toulouse. How would we have reacted right. if it was Toulouse? How yeah, would we no, have sure. reacted if it was Poitiers? Uh, and I suspect less, because we are a, a, a culture of these little cultural landmarks rather than countries. But, those, but those cultural landmarks are targets for that reason. Yeah, Like, absolutely. we're in London, uh, they chose to, to do... This, Seven seven bombings here. Yep. They didn't choose, you know, Winstable or like, you know, uh, Lincoln or anywhere that no one really has heard of. Yep. Similarly, nine eleven happened in New York. I mean, the, the reason that these things happen in these big cultural centres is for that reason. I mean, Brussels. We may not have the same relationship to Brussels in this country as we do to Paris, yep. but we have a lot more relationship to Brussels than any yep. other part of Belgium sure. that might have might have been targeted. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's sad to think that these cosmopolitan places, which are often, in some ways, although it's much more complicated than this, the most welcoming to uh, different groups are often the ones which are attacked, whereas the areas which are much more polarised and actually are not attacked, um, which means that... And I guess part of that is to make us less yeah. multicultural, to make yeah. us less supportive of each other. I mean, you know... Brussels has its... Its own case as well, though, because of the Molenbeek situation and because it's become this hotbed of young, I assume mostly men, going out, getting radicalised and coming back, it was an easy one to do. It was an easy thing to retaliate, so they'd just captured... Is it Abdel Salah, the, the guy? It's something, uh, it's a name like that or similar. So he was the, the chap who masterminded the Paris attacks and they tracked him down to, I think, the road next to where he'd lived uh, in Molenbeek because someone ordered a pizza. It was the most ridiculous, only in Belgium, for the love of God, sort yourselves out kind of story. So why didn't you catch him earlier? Um, but then it was just after he got captured that there was an attack on Brussels. So it was a very clear... Retaliation. Yeah. If you go after us, we will hurt more people. So perhaps there is a symbolism to Brussels, and certainly I think targeting the EU district was a symbolism, but I don't think it had the same kind of motives behind it as, as targeting Paris. 
I think it's less of a, a scalp. Well, it's an interesting thing, though, to attack kind of Brussels, though, because Brussels isn't just about Belgium, it's about Europe. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 certainly that attack happened in this country, not too far away from where we're voting whether we're going to stay in Europe. Do you want me to hold the mic for a bit? Uh, yeah, go on, then. That's a good uh, <laughs> solution. Don't press anything. <laughs> um, yeah, like, it's definitely... like the. You know, so Europe is is, is a a continent that's in cri- like crisis and in disagreement, <laughs> and Brussels is a, a symbol in this country, as you say, of bendy bananas and everything that's in quotes wrong with Europe. Um, and I mean, I guess. I mean, it's an interesting moment for that to have happened. I wonder. I I wonder if it's meant that that there'll be more pro-European votes um, because of the fact of solidarity, or if uh, there's been less support for Brussels because of the lack of solidarity. Um, but it's definitely will have had some kind of relationship to all of that. I, yeah, I which is not to say it's on the part of the te- the terrorists that they were planning that, but it's had that. The, these knock-on effects seem to be kind of it, almost it's irrelevant to what the intentions are. Oh, no. Everything seems to play the same it seems function. So um, sort of petty to go. What is the effect of terrorism on the Brexit vote? Right. But that has been the conversation. Right. I bet that's pretty annoying in, in lots of ways. If, if because it's well, well, I mean, I guess like you've got. I mean, it, I, I know what you mean. Like. Um, when 7-7 happened, it was definitely the tube stations that got to me and hurt me, the mm-hmm. ones I, my family could have been on, that I could have been on. Um, and it, that made it so much closer than 9-11. Um, so you must have been having a lot more, like even than Paris, you must have been having a lot more uh, stress. I'm, I'll put, put that can as far away from us as possible in the hope that that will encourage wasps to <laughs> go to the, to the sugar, go to the sugar wasps. There's nothing, nothing sugary here. Oh, well, that's a bee. Bees are all right. Okay. <laughs> a bee doesn't hurt you unless you try and hurt it. Whereas a wasp uh, hurts first and uh, doesn't worry, worries about the consequences of this later. <laughs> um, so, from the terrorists of the insect world uh, to the uh, to away from terrorism, I guess, because I don't want to pigeonhole you. I mean, I'm sure this happens to you a lot. In, in I mean, I'm being a slightly ironic there. Of like, it's quite rare that white people get pigeonholed in these kind of ways. So, I guess Brussels must be a kind of an interesting experience in uh, people caring about your 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 background it in was, a way that don't, doesn't normally happen. And it was very personal, and I was very grateful. Um, it lasted about 48 hours that people would say, oh God, are you alright? And when I'd speak to people, you know, I'd speak to them about what we've just been talking about and they'd be like, no, I was worried about you and uh, your loved ones back in Brussels and people would text me and go, are you alright? Is everything alright? So, yeah, I've not felt tired about it in slightest. Like, it was really lovely to talk about it at the time and go, yeah, this is awful, and I I obsessively read the internet for yeah, yeah. about a week, looking not just for all the kind of news updates, because there was something that felt slightly tawdry about just waiting for an update for the, the police to find these guys, and then kind of all the links with Paris and all that. You're like, yep, that that's interesting, but I was 
so much more moved and interested in people's reactions. There was, in the same way that after Paris and after Charlie and I'm sure after London, which I can't uh, remember particularly, there was a big outpouring of art. And again, because Brussels is so connected in the Francophone world with comics especially, um, you know, they're the self-styled capital of comics. Tintin, right? Tintin's uh, the big boy, he's the king. And there were a lot of pictures of Tintin crying, or there's one of sort of a dead Tintin on the pavement. I was like, just God, don't do that. <laughs> but the one that really got to me, uh, I remember, was it was one of the mannequin piss. Do you know the mannequin piss? So mannequin piss is the kind of unofficial symbol of Brussels, and it's a little boy having a wee, and it's a fountain, and he's right there in the centre, and you can buy mannequin piss corkscrews and all the waffle stands named after him, and all of this, and they dress him up all the time in different costumes, so there's a million of them. This mannequin pisses Elvis, this mannequin pisses Father Christmas. Right. And he's a, become a kind of symbol of the irreverence of the city, and the fact that Bruxellois and Belgians have a somewhat, I don't give a damn what you think, attitude. Uh, and there's just this one cartoon of him sort of hunched over with his arms over his head, not coming out to play. I was like, oh, Christ, like, that is the one that, that felt the most real of just everyone going, no, we're not coming out to play tonight. But yeah, for people's reactions to it, people have been lovely. And I mean, and so, yeah, as I say, moving away from your, your sure. place of origin, um, you've just finished Radio Man. Yep. Um, which was a, a, a well, a one-person play, but also there's two characters in it, <laughs> but one of them's uh, more complicated, I'll say. Because uh, I don't know if you're doing it again. I don't necessarily want to give spoilers. Um, so that was a, a, a... Did you write that yourself? Yes. Um, and you performed it? Yeah. Uh, it was directed by Tom Crowley, who I... It was indeed. ...did a GBA with yesterday. Oh, right. uh, although I don't know when these will come out in like whether they'll come out in chronological order or in Where did you places. do it with Tom? Uh, in my flat. Okay. Um, so yeah, and I, I so I saw that and I, I thought it was a really interesting uh, show. Uh, like I guess quite influenced by Neil Gaiman. I think you, you. I think that was mentioned a little bit in the publicity a little bit. Uh, yeah, Gaiman uh, was mentioned by some someone. reviewer. So, so like, someone yeah. put that on you, and I've just also put it on you. I mean. Everyone who reviews it tells me who I'm influenced by. And, yeah, I, I, I like Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Don't wrong. I, I, I really like Neil Gaiman. So, right. yes, possibly. And, I mean, it was, and it was a, a show about radio as much as it was about anything else. It was about lots of things, I think. Yeah. I mean, in, in its... We're going to be recording it for an audio version, and that will come out at some point. Oh, um, excellent. But it's uh, a show about uh, a, a person out for a walk who finds a, a rotting narrowboat... And inside, there's a rotting DJ, and it's a, a DJ station, and uh, a friendship ensues between the two, and then it develops. Right, it definitely develops. <laughs> uh, and it kind of takes you in all sorts of directions that you're not necessarily expecting, which I thought was, was nice. And there was a sort of sense of wonder uh, in that show that you were trying to create, I think, in the audience that I appreciate. I always like shows that try to create wonder. Good. Um, and that seemed to be very much what you were going for. I mean, you can say if it's not. Um, and so, and that's the show that you've done on your by by yourself. Yeah. Um, is that have you have you done any other shows previous to that on your on, like of your own writing? Uh, not quite in the same form. So I've 
Well, that show began as a 10-minute short story five years ago, and it's developed over that time. I, and I was previewing it in various forms last year. In January, uh, another solo show, again with that sort of similar interest I have of the banal meets fantasy. Right. Um, magical realism, you could Magical say. realism. I mean, I kind of like those kind of... I like art that is magical realist, but I don't think that all art that's magical realist gets that term applied to it. And I also think that a lot of art that gets that term applied to it, people get turned off by the cliches they assume I are going to be there. So, but I like magical realism, so I, 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 I appreciate that element of it. Well, that was a, a one-woman show called Valkyrie, uh, ah, right. which was performed by Lindsay Dukes, um, and that went on at the vaults in January, and we're currently pitching it to other venues. Um, again, very kind of storytelling-based, although she has much more of a character than my guy did in Radio Man, who's a bit of a cipher, uh, at least for the early parts, I'd argue. Uh, and that was... That was a fantasy lorry driver, and then Alice Isn't Dead came out. I went, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, that one was all about sort of motorways in the afterlife. Right. You know you're onto a good idea when everybody else has it at yeah. the same time. That always <laughs> happens to me. I mean... And you play the lead in Wooden Overcoats, the... Uh, I, one of the... One of the, uh, one of the leads. I'd say there's two of us kind of co-protagonists and then Tom is the main antagonist. Right. Uh, so Beth Eyre and I play twins, um, Rudyard and Antigone Fun, and we run uh, the crabby old established funeral parlour on a made-up Channel Island called Piffling, and then Tom... Uh, plays Eric Chapman who comes in at the beginning of the series as the exciting sexy new funeral director who sets up shop across the square and everyone starts going to him for their funerals and he opens a cafe and things and right and this is a kind of radio sitcom yeah it's a radio sitcom and it, you've done one season of it yep another season may or may not come in the future Tom we'll... was quite cagey on this <laughs> was he <laughs> uh, yeah we're <laughs> it's probably because he doesn't know what he's allowed to say or not yep that was indeed it <laughs> uh, yeah well we put out a blog post today about it so season two is in the planning stages we've got writers we've got story arcs people are writing drafts and the studio, I believe, is booked, but we today announced when our Kickstarter is coming out, which is two weeks from now. Ah. We found ourselves in a funny situation of having done this thing, I, I don't know how much of this you covered with Tom, but on a lot of goodwill, with a, a lot of very good professional people donating their time because they like the project, and there are so many companies, certainly in this city who take and exploit creative professionals by either making money off them or putting their monies into production values rather than the people who make those production values. That We didn't want to do that, especially if we made a success of season one. Uh, so we've kind of pushed it all together and worked out how much we need to raise to pay everyone you know, some wage, a fair wage. It's yeah. not going to be megabucks, but it's enough that we think we're doing the right thing. Right, and a lot of time and work goes into Wooden Overcoats. I mean, yeah. when I was talking to Tom yesterday, I got some idea of the production process, and it's a lot of time, a lot of work, and yeah. so it feels like it's absolutely fair to be striving to pay some of those people some of that, yeah. some, some money to uh, make up for the amount of time that goes into it. 
Uh, so, and do you you write a bit for Wooden Overcoats no. as well? No, not at all. No, not in slightest. Wow. Um, okay. The original idea, like the absolute basic pitch of rival funeral directors, came from me, and the idea of turning it into a radio sitcom rather than a short film, which was the original idea, I think was my suggestion. But I was going to write, as I say, a short film version with Tom. Then we shelved that idea because things got in the way. But then I pitched it to my flatmate, David, who is a very talented playwright, and he disappeared upstairs and then reappeared with a treatment for episode one. (laughs) Oh! This is brilliant. <laughs> so he acts as head writer over it. He has a team of writers under him. He uh, has four or five this season, I'm not sure. Uh, and then he'll write, I think, four episodes. The others will write four episodes, and he'll edit the whole thing together. But the like Radio Man, and I've done a bit of kind of live short story reading, is the most I've done of performing my own work. I don't... Radio Man was a lot of fun, but I don't much like doing my own stuff I really like separating church and state and having writer brain for these things actor brain for these things because I find when I cross the streams it's it's very difficult to let go of one side or the other and ultimately it's just much harder to enjoy it Radio Man was very satisfying and I'm very proud of it but the kind of the joy I got out of watching Valkyrie was so much greater uh, because I gave them the script and said, off you go, like, uh, it's no longer my decision. And it was wonderful to watch. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's such an ego massage. <laughs> <laughs> and when did you start writing? I've always, like, tinkered, but I suppose Radio Man was the first time I did a big thing. And from doing that, so the, the first kind of hour-long draft... That was two years ago. Uh, I've done more and more short story writing, and that's something that I'm very interested in. I've hosted a couple of short story nights now. I I invite people who I know also write short stories but are also performers, and we don't learn it. We just read stuff that we've written, and if I can get other production values as well. So uh, Odin, who did the music to... Well, he he coded the music to Radio Man. Uh, He came along to one of these once, and he played guitar... Uh, and improvised alongside a, a ghost stories night that I hosted. So, two years to answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You said you do a bit of uh, graphic design and some quiz running do, to, yeah. to to make a little bit of extra money on top of these things. I mean, is that is that because you, would you consider yourself a freelancer then? Like, is that yeah. kind of what you do? Yeah. Yeah. It's fun, fun being a freelancer. So much stability uh, in yeah. it. I would recommend it. Great pension plan and uh, great perks. Um, it's more fun. <laughs> but like, so how did you get into doing quizzes? Quizzes. I used to work at the King's Head Theatre as uh, front of house. Uh, there was a show on there called The Flannelettes, which was great, and uh, a woman in that called Emma who runs a quiz company or she co-runs it with two other guys and almost all of their quiz masters are either actors or some other kind of performers I I said I was interested and so she invited me along to a training day Uh, and it's great I've been doing that since August I have a regular one that I do at the Algin on Sundays 
and then I mostly do covers aside from that because that's kind of what's lovely about it is if you can't do something at short notice there's so many other people in the company that you can just go I've got an audition that day or whatever uh, can someone come and cover for me right. uh, and I really like doing the covers because they take me all over London and uh, it's more interesting I think than going into the same place over and over again I think I mean I get a bit bored after that so it, it suits me I had like a five week stretch where I was going down to uh, Mortlake and Sheen and that kind of area which was a bugger to get to but it was fun (laughs) nice to get to know that community for a little bit right it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you today. It's been a pleasure getting better um, with you, David. It's nice sitting in the sun. Yeah. Uh, it's nice talking uh, to you. Uh, not all of the topics we've talked about have been nice topics, but they've been nice to talk about with yeah. you, Lee. The last question I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? And I guess we've mentioned quite a few things, but maybe we should tell people where to find them. Oh, yeah, I mean, woodenovercoats.com, that's, all the information is there. Um, I did think of something earlier, though, that I wanted to plug, which is my friend Georgie Morell is doing a show called Poke in the Eye at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is going, I think, to be on at the Free Fringe. Uh, and it's her first show bringing up there, uh, and I think it's brilliant. People should see it. She is an actress that I trained with. Uh, she is blind in one eye, and uh, there was a, a while a few years ago when she went blind in the other eye, and it's her story of what happened at that time. And it's, it's very moving, but also very, very funny. So people should go see Poke in the Eye if they're doing Edinburgh. Brilliant. That's a great plug. And it's nice, it's nice when pl- people uh, plug other people's stuff. That's, that is always nice. Uh, although, absolutely, people should check out Wooden Overcoats and they should also uh, look out for Radio Man when that comes into its existence as, a, as an audio product. <laughs> and I can see how that show will work really well for, for radio <laughs> since it's about radio yeah. and it's got the so many sound effects. The number of reviews we've had going, this isn't really a live show, but for a radio show, I wonder if he's worked that out. I was like, eh, <laughs> yeah, no, we've thought about it, thanks. <laughs> but it had a, a very nice, uh, it had a very nice staging. I feel like if it had been just a radio show, that stage would never have existed. So yeah, That's uh, my flatmate, Anna Driftmeyer, is a set designer, and she's very good. Yeah, no, it was a really nice set. I was, I was really impressed, and it was a weird set to be doing a, a GBA in, like, you know, boats. Of course. Um, that was an, an interesting That was such a framing. funny evening. Yeah, right, you were one of the... Yeah, this is your second <laughs> appearance on the show, really, because you were one of the four audience members uh, that put James on trial. Yes, poor old James. <laughs> I asked him if he'd... Uh, ever had plans to do anything else and he was so adamant that no, no, this is everything I was like, oh, okay, cool yeah, right <laughs> so right. but though that was a nice that was a nice uh, that was a nice recording um, in a way, like for me it's in some ways having four people that the uh, guest knows well in different ways was more useful and more interesting than having an entire audience yeah. of strangers uh, in some ways although the strangers would have meant that I would have, you know possibly made some money sure. which is actually in some ways more useful but it's hard for me to to think that way even as I should uh, <laughs> although you know if people feel uh, sad for me not having very much money they can always donate to getting better acquainted there is a, a link uh, that I put up on the on the SoundCloud page that will take them to a, a PayPal account and it's quite convoluted but if you do that you can uh, sign up to pay uh, one-off or regular instalments. I have at least one person who does that. So that's nice. That's, good. <laughs> that's really lovely. Some months too. Uh, who knows? Yeah, that's the excitement of life. 
Um, and the last, the last thing I ask my guests uh, to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Bye, audience. Bye, everyone. Wow, bang on an hour. Hey! <laughs> Wooden overcoats at the time of me recording this have made £7,007 in their Kickstarter campaign. Their target is, however, £8,000. And so they still have a little way to go. And if you don't know anything about Kickstarter, you might not know. But if you don't get the amount that you're aiming for, you don't get any of the money. So even though they've nearly raised 100% of what they need and what they're asking for, if they don't raise the whole of it, then they won't get it. So if you want to donate to help Wooden Overcoat's second season, do go and support their Kickstarter. I'm very excited that I'm able to fully officially announce that the Family Tree podcast is on its way. It's a spin-off from Getting Better Acquainted and features me as its host. And it's coming out in September 2016. It's a mystery show. It's a fictional show, or is it? And it's really, really exciting. Find out more about it at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. But also, you can subscribe to it on iTunes already. There's two teasers. There's a Patreon account where you can sign up to support the Family Tree to help us to get the money to pay ourselves and our performers properly. So please do go over and sign up to that Patreon now if you want, or you can wait until the show starts coming out before you make that decision. And if you want to support what I do, but you don't want to support projects that aren't in existence quite yet, you can help me to make Getting Better Acquainted by donating to this show. Also, you can hear me in a few other places. My voice is one of many in the most recent episode of The Illusionist podcast. I'm also interviewing and being interviewed on this week's edition of the Chill Pack Hollywood Hour podcast. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook and on Twitter. It's at GBA podcast. I've got some upcoming Stand Up Tragedy Presents events where we're showcasing four of our favourite performers doing their full-length shows in the run-up to Edinburgh, which is happening on the 13th and 14th of July at the Dog Star in Brixton. Find out more about that at www.standuptragedy.co.uk or follow Stand Up Tragedy on Facebook or Twitter at Stand Up for tragedy the number four and if you want to follow me on twitter i'm goosefat 101 to find out about my masculinity show that's the most recent stand-up tragedy podcast you can listen to the whole show in its entirety and you can also find out more about it at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk thanks very much for listening and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted